This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Frank Rich had a distinguished career at the New York Times as the chief drama critic, op-ed columnist, and senior writer for the New York Times magazine. Since 2008, he's been a creative consultant at HBO and the executive producer of three-time Emmy-winning series Veep and HBO's new series about the members of a family media dynasty, Succession. He's also a writer-at-large for New York Magazine, where he covers politics and culture. He joins me now for a closer look. Frank, you are a TV producer now, and you still write about politics for New York Magazine. But let's start with showbiz and your latest career as producer. How did you get into business with HBO? What happened was that uh, in 2008, there was a change in management at HBO, and two new executives who had had other positions in the company took over as, and they were discovering as they took over the cupboard was sort of bare the network had a lot of big hits like sopranos and sex in the city that were either about to be off the air or soon would be they were nearing the end of their runs and they cast about to a number of people of whom i was one who were not necessarily in television to sort of pick their brains and it led to them suggesting that i uh, come along as a sort of creative consultant as a, as a side activity, extracurricular activity to my journalism career. At the time, uh, I was also told if I wanted to try to produce anything, I could. And, and almost immediately, I produced a um, documentary for HBO about uh, Stephen Sondheim, the songwriter. Also at that time, they said they were very much looking for a smart show about Washington and politics. They had aired a show called K Street, Uh, that had not been successful, it was already gone by the time I arrived. And I started a search that ultimately led me to Armando Iannucci and what would become Veep, and then I was sort of off to the races learning how to be a series producer. How much fun are you having producing shows like Veep and, and, and now Succession? Is your new career the best way to combine your two loves, showbiz and political analysis? I think it is. I, 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 as, a, as a former theater critic, I grew up loving the theater and, and, and show business, um, but weirdly never thought of going into it, uh, just writing about it, which I did first as a TV and film critic at time, even before I became drama critic at the Times. And so I sort of fell into this relatively late in, in life. Uh, But I found I loved it. And what's great about working on shows like Succession and Veep is that they have a lot of social and arguably political commentary, but they're still about telling a story about sort of their Mickey and Judy putting on a show. It's about dealing with actors. And it's an alternative reality uh, from the real world, which particularly these days I feel very glad to have because even in a show like Veep, we never mention... Donald Trump or Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. We never refer to contemporary politicians at all. So it's great to be able to work out ideas, uh, have some laughs, uh, build something that's 
completely alternative reality to the one that I have to cover as a journalist and that we live in every day in real life. How's HBO as a partner? HBO is is terrific, and I say that not just because I work there. I've really learned this a lot from listening to my colleagues on both shows. All of them, from Julia Lee Dreyfus, the star of Veep, on down, have had scarring experiences working for conventional network television where executives uh, censor things or they water things down or they have their own terrible ideas. HBO, and I've worked with a number of executives there on a number of projects, including ones that have failed, never intrude in that way. The whole idea of it is to give artists that they back, and it's very competitive to get on HBO, their freedom, even if it's the freedom to hang themselves at times. And so if they make suggestions, they're, they're smart ones usually. You can take them or leave them. And, and they're not about office politics or sponsors, for instance, because there are no sponsors at HBO. Are you comfortable with the new ownership? Yeah, so far it's impossible to tell, but the theory of the case is that AT&T doesn't want to uh, fix something that isn't broken and that they need HBO to continue to be successful as it has been and suddenly not they don't need to go to Hollywood and tell HBO what to do. The new show for HBO, Succession, is about the business world and the personal dynamics of a media conglomerate family. Is there... Any history behind this to interest you in this particular subject? Well, yes. I mean, first of all, I am working for the the New York Times for the years I did, although it's not a rapacious international organization like the one in succession. It still is, uh, was and is a family-owned media company where there are battles for succession with each generation, incredibly enough. This is not to liken the Roy family of succession to the Salzburgers. They're very different animals. Also, just as a journalist and seeing what's happened um, to journalism in my time, the way these big families, uh, whether it be uh, you know the Murdochs or the Redstones or whatever, can can control media, ch- change change it, have huge impact on it over succeeding generations, has been a great interest to me. As a writer, you know, as a journalist, it's, it's it's my business, so I've been very attentive to it. You wrote about seeing Angels in America again recently, and you say the new production doesn't radically depart in tone or quality, but the play's center of gravity has shifted. When you talk about that, are you talking about our society has shifted since then, or exactly what? Good question. I mean, I was I, I saw this new production of Angels uh, in America uh, last year when it began in, in London before it transferred to Broadway. And what struck me is, first of all, a big part of the, the backdrop of, of the play is the height of the AIDS crisis, which was still going on when it had its premiere 25 years ago. Obviously, while AIDS is still a plague, it's the ramifications of it and the scope of it have changed over the ensuing uh, couple of generations. But also what I was struck by was particularly watching Nathan Lane's performance in the role. Roy Cohn, uh, who is seen in the play basically in his 1980s role as a New York legal fixer, not although there are allusions to the McCarthy era, it's not really about that, 
sounded to me exactly like Donald Trump. And it wasn't because Lane was in any way impersonating Trump, and, and certainly no lines had been rewritten over 25 years, but there was a kind of brutality, uh, a win-at-all-costs, a kind of extra-legal mentality from this lawyer that seemed very contemporary to me, even as the other parts of the play also remain strong. And that led me to think about it further and ultimately write a piece for New York about Roy Cohn. You mentioned Donald Trump, and I know that uh, you're not a fan, but I have to ask you whether there are any of the things that Trump has done politically since taking office that you can live with, that you think may not have been a bad idea? I think it's too early to tell. I, I honestly do. And it's also hard. He's so inconsistent in that he can say one day, I want to help the dreamers, and the next day be obdurate about any kind of immigration reform that you don't even know which Donald Trump you're dealing with. What I would say is, and I've written this, um, the Donald Trump of the campaign did do some good things, including, um, in my view, demolishing a lot of myths about how political campaigns, particularly at the national level, should work. I mean, one of the reasons he won or, or got it, particularly the nomination was he said, well, you don't have to uh, be polite and uh, curb every answer the way most politicians do when you're in a debate. You can let it all hang out and say whatever you really mean, which was anathema to a candidate like Jeb Bush or to Hillary Clinton, for instance. He didn't listen to political strategists who have sort of owned the process in both parties for years of how to strategize campaigns. He was his own strategist and sort of said, the heck with it, you know, for all these so-called experts. Uh, he also didn't raise tons of money. I mean, ultimately raised a lot of money, but he didn't rely on corporate contributions. Granted, he's rich, although how rich remains a subject of some debate. Um, but he 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 didn't take a ton of polls, at least until maybe some stuff at the end involving Cambridge Analytica, if that can be called a form of polling or data consumption analysis. So he he broke he he you know he said you don't have to cater to every farmer in Iowa during the caucus process. So basically, he exposed the in my view the sham of sort of the political establishment in both parties. Uh, that has been running things, and that was a breath of fresh air. Now, the ends to which he's using it is, is a whole other issue. But, you know, taking example, um, the whole issue of campaign contributions, he wasn't wrong when he said, I've given to all these politicians on the stage, or I've given to uh, Hillary Clinton, and she, came, she and Bill came to my wedding. He was right. And, of course, he's, in my view, as corrupt in, in many ways on his own, but he and and it was sort of a hypocrite about that, given what the kind of stuff that's going on in his administration in terms of campaign donors getting pay for play in government agencies. But be that as it may, I don't think a political campaign will ever be as canned again as it was up until his arrival on the scene. Turning to your uh, non-political career back in showbiz, is there a show that you now regret? having given a great review to? You know, uh, when I 
20 years ago, yeah, not 20 years ago, 15, 17 years ago, I did, maybe 20 years ago, I did a book called Hot Seat. It was a collection of my theater reviews from the Times. And at the end, I had a list of uh, productions I'd both overrated and underrated. One of the ones I overrated, I'm not, it's something that's still, it's a musical that's still revived, but I so I won't say what it is because it's been it's been considered a success all these years. But one of them, I had, I had been a big smoker, and um, in like the mid '80s, I decided to quit and did quit. The last cigarette I had was at a dinner after I saw the critics' performance of the play. The next morning, I had to go in and write my review. I'd gone to the last preview, and I was just chewing trident gum. I was in this crazy post you know, nicotine kind of state. So I overcompensated. I thought, I can't take this out on the on the show, and I overpraised the show, and now it's considered a, a, a semi-classic of American theater. I wish you'd name it. I, I, I don't want to, because the people who wrote it are still around and so on. Frank, you try to see the bigger picture of our cultural narrative. So do you see any changes in the stories or themes of film, TV, and theater in the age of Trump? And is there any way to satirize the current White House? There's certainly been a single-minded devotion of late-night comedy on American television to the subject of Donald Trump in every network across the board, no matter who the host is. Um, I feel it's a little early to see Trump fall out in, in you know, theater and movies, um, it takes longer to produce them. Fiction, I think we're starting to see a little, but nothing significant yet. People, of course, are finding Trump in everything they look at because like him or hate him, people are obsessed with him. Um, the question about satirizing him is a, uh, uh, a tricky one. In Veep, we have the luxury of we never satirize actual real-life politicians. In fact, we've never mentioned Trump. We never mentioned Obama. We never mentioned Clinton. Uh, we have a completely fictional alternative version of uh, of Washington. That said, um, Trump is president. He's changed what is the definition, I think, of outrageous in the Capitol. And we have our, our hero or anti-hero, Selena Meyer, who's been vice president and president in our show, is despicable. She is um, completely vain, narcissistic, corrupt, ill-informed, could care less about our constituents, only cares about herself. Everything about her is just awful. Well, now we have someone who, uh, who's the actual president who, depending on some people's point of view, including mine, might give her a run for for her money and might, if anything, be somewhat more vulgar than, say, uh, she is. And so how do we, how do we take that into account in, 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 in constructing our own comedy? We're thinking about it now. We have one more season to go. We're going to start shooting it late this summer. The writing process has begun. We have to recalibrate a bit because we don't want to be too tame. On the other hand, we don't want to be too stupid and broad and scattershot either. So... It's an, inter- it's an interesting sort of literary intellectual problem to have. I'd like to ask you about the civility debate we're having. Voters are urging the Democrats to stop playing nice, but others warn that the Democrats just can't play the same 
attack and outrage game that Trump plays. I have to say, I feel a lot of the civility debate has been um, a bit disingenuous and beside the point. I mean, these incidents that have happened basically at restaurants, um, well, they're not pleasant. I don't think they move the needle one way or another. I thought there was, uh, in a recent New York Times op-ed page, there was a fascinating uh, piece uh, arguing that in the civil rights movement, there was a lot of, in, in in the civil rights era, there was a lot of the same discussion among Democrats and Republicans. We should be more civil, uh, we that's the way to get things done, to not rock the boat, to have compromise, but it didn't work. And ultimately, Martin Luther King and others said, you know what, we can't be civilized all the time. So we'll see. Right now, what's happened, I feel, is so tamed. If anyone who lived through the late 1960s and the Vietnam era, this it really, is, it's nothing. It really, that's really so. I had an interesting conversation with Charlie Cook recently, mm who suggested to me that uh, Trump could well be beaten by a strong candidate in the next election. How do you feel about that? I absolutely feel that's the case. I, I, I really feel it boils down to be deal with, the, and Charlie Cook is the master of this, I'm not, but the hard politics or the numerical politics are very simple. If Democrats turn out they can they can win both uh, both of the next two elections, but they have to turn out. The fact is that uh, there was depressed turnout of the uh, Democratic uh, base not only in the last two midterm elections, including you know the Tea Party shellacking of several cycles ago, but in the Clinton campaign, a lot of young people, a lot of African Americans, were not excited without Barack Obama on on the ballot, uh, and so that allowed uh, uh, Trump to get in, even and even then he didn't win a majority, obviously, of the popular vote. So it's really, um, I think that's what it's about. And the Trump, this idea that the Trump base is going to shift away from him is completely mistaken. That's a lost battle for the Democrats. Trump had it right when he said at the beginning, I could pull a gun out on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and my base would be loyal. Look what they've been loyal through. I don't have to recite it all the way here, but from Stormy Daniels to yes. you name it, uh, to and arguably selling out to uh, North Korea, uh, they're not going to change and they're going to turn out. So it's really incumbent on the Democrats to have the right candidates, but also excitement and not get sidetracked by, you know, should someone ask someone to leave a restaurant or not? This is exactly the last thing that they should be worrying about now. Uh, Frank, we were talking last about the right candidate to take Trump on. Uh, Give me a couple of names that you think might be the right candidate. I'd rather be shy about that because I feel I want, want to, you know, they're interesting personalities, but I don't want to say they're the right candidate. You know, from Someone like uh, a lot of people, like been spending a lot of time in L.A. working on television, a lot of people think very highly of, of, of Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, who's not the usual person like Kamala Harris mentioned as a California contender. John Hickenlooper out in Colorado. Um, I want to see more people that I don't, that are not the same old, same old. Does that mean that someone like, Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren couldn't galvanize people, I, not necessarily. But I'm 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 I really feel strongly 
the Democrats need a new generation in, in, in Washington as well as on a presidential ballot. Wouldn't another Bernie Sanders run doom Democratic candidate? The Bernie Sanders phenomenon, I have to say, I sort of missed. I don't quite get it. Um, I feel, honestly, I feel he's too old to run. Leave the politics aside. I feel he's too old to run, and I feel Biden's too old to run. But if Bernie runs, it's not going to help. It's not, but I don't necessarily, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I don't think it's going to hurt. I think if, if Bernie Sanders is beaten by within the Democratic Party by some vibrant uh, candidate, younger than he is, as fresh. That's probably true. That's probably true. He'll, he'll fade the way people always fade when they come back one time too often in politics. Now, again, in terms of civility, you just wrote about the upset victory in New York by 28-year-old Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mm-hmm. over the 10-term incumbent. You can say it's an object lesson in what effective democratic politics can look like. What did she do right? And wasn't it just that Crowley just missed his his shot? He he was last the the hero of the last ten years. Not he wasn't on on target. Well, I think you've sort of answered the question in a way because, but the thing about Crowley we have to remember is that's everything you say is true. But he was number four in the Democratic leadership and representative. Which is of, incredible. Which is incredible. And representative, if he had been a backbencher that no one ever heard of and didn't wasn't in Democratic leadership, this would be meaningless. Yeah. But the fact is that he was at the top of the party and, and talked about as a possible Nancy Pelosi successor. So that tells you everything you need to know about what she toppled. And then she had a platform that's, to me, pretty much Democratic mainstream. But more than that, she actually organized and went to work and got people excited rather than sitting back and 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 she did it in a way uh, that was under the radar so under the ra- radar that her campaign wasn't covered by the New York Times which has now become a subject of much interest and I think deservedly so because it makes you wonder what else isn't being covered that's going a on lot. the democratic exactly people are, the so-called liberal media has been so obsessed with Understanding the Trump voters since November of 2016, having failed to understand the Trump voter before the election, that they're fighting the last war. And to some extent, the Democratic Party is, too. And I think what she represents is almost more important than who she is. Now, you predicted that the shelf life of the Korean mission accomplished will be about a week. Now, it looks like you were only off by a few days. What do you think Trump will do now that North Korea is reported to be enriching uranium and has a secret third nuclear site? Uh, does that mean that uh, Korea, North Korea is off the radar, that Trump simply won't talk about it again, or uh, will he turn on them? My guess is he won't turn on them, and you even see someone like John Bolton, who was a hardliner before he entered the White House, kind of half-making excuses for uh, Kim Jong-un, I think that Trump will do, I think Trump's idea with North Korea in the first place was to take everyone's mind off of the Mueller investigation to create, quote, peace in our time, 
do a big stunt, a big reality show stunt. And he never really looked at the fine print any more than he does in anything else. Already, I'm hearing there's already been published talk that he's now thinking that the way to solve this is to have an even bigger stunt, which is to invite him to New York for another summit, which is just hilarious or crazy or tragic or scary, depending on how you want to look at it. But my feeling is um, he's very much looking for things to distract from the Russian collusion investigation. It's an obsession. And so the the bad case scenario, of course, is he decides to declare war on North Korea, and that's what, what happens next. I find that unlikely. I find it more more likely they'll do what he usually does, which is to double down and say, I was right and I'm still right, and we're, and this, we're ending the nuclear threat of North Korea. Don't you think he's been somewhat effective in uh, diminishing the impact of Mueller's probe, the general attitude is, well, where where is it going? We've been at it and at it and at it. When does it reach its... That's the that's the intention, of course, is, as people know, as people will point out, it's hardly been going on at all if you look at the timeline compared to Iran-Contra, the Benghazi probe conducted by the Republicans, or the uh, Ken Starr investigation Clinton. But yes, it has... Created, it's created a kind of fog around the Mueller investigation, a kind of impatience. My own theory is no one knows what Mueller has found. Any leaks that we're hearing are from people who testify before a grand jury or people who want stuff, lawyers who want stuff out there. There's no evidence that the Mueller uh, investigation is leaking at all. Uh, it has already secured more than a dozen indictments. And my su- su- suspicion is that when he does give his report, even if Trump tries to fire him, so it's going to get out, it's going to be compelling reading that will command people's attention and make them maybe forget about the smokescreen of the past few months. At the New York Times, he was an award-winning op-ed columnist and drama critic, and he currently writes about politics and culture for New York Magazine. Since 2008, he's been a creative director at HBO, producing the three-time Emmy-winning stories Veep, and the new show about the members of a family media dynasty called Succession. Frank Rich, thank you for joining us. By the way, if any in the audience have comments about the program or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, a single word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. 